Hi ladies, good to be with you for our last and final CPRT training video. It's been such an exciting journey and path and it's just been really encouraging to me and I know I say that almost every time but it's true. So um, it's really been fun and it's been great to get to know you and watch you work with your families and and see the benefit that they have received from this and, and how much you all have grown and adapted to using these skills even though it was new to you 10 short weeks ago. So exciting to be on our final video and today is basically a recap. So no new skills, no new material, really kind of helping the parents have a fresh reminder and recap of everything that the training covered. A little bit of phrases introduced that haven't necessarily been explicitly stated before but as a general rule this is really just kind of a capstone session where we get to go over everything that we've learned up to this point and gets it fresh in their minds so that even though you're no longer going to be meeting with them they will be able to have them to fall back on and use with their kids at home so go ahead and grab your manual if you don't already have it the first and only rule of thumb today is good things come in small packages. And the intention behind that skill is that a lot of times, and I think we've worked on this throughout the entirety of the training, helping parents to have a different framework in which they view their children and their children's behavior, things like that. But a lot of times we as adults or parents are guilty of waiting for monumental, big, significant things in the child's life, in the way that they change, the way that they grow, you know, those milestones or there's those markers of development, things like that. Especially when parents have been waiting for a change in behavior, they kind of are always leaning toward these big moments. And what this says is the big events are not what we should be focused on. The little ways are always with us and hold on to the precious moments. And this is typically where I share a little bit about the precious moments that I observed in watching their videos. You know, remember when Billy said this to you in that video and that was such a precious moment. And remember when Susie did this with you. And so I take the time to identify what those precious moments looked like as far as what I observed. And Obviously, there are far more than what I would be aware of. But I think that that really helps put things in perspective for the parent about, wow, there are so many precious moments. And, you know, it says don't wait for the big events to enter into the child's world. They, there will always be big events, and there are probably co some coming soon for all of these families. But the little moments and the little ways are actually far more significant, and it's important to focus on those instead of, waiting for the really big ones. So that's the only rule of thumb today. And I think that, especially since this is the final week, the last time that you'll meet, the more examples you can give from their work with their own children in this week to illustrate or to highlight something, the more effective that is because it's bringing back to their minds everything that they've done in this 10-week training. So if you'll flip the page with me, you'll see there are two pages today with this week 10. So the first is going over all of the rules of thumb. So 15 total and 
there have been one, two, or three every single week. So here they all are listed in one succinct place. That is actually helpful because I typically will say to parents, now you have one sheet that you can post on the fridge or you can post on your mirror or you can post you know, in your journal or wherever it is that they consistently are reading and observing because it's just to kind of keep it fresh, to keep them aware of using these and remembering these in a meaningful way. So rather than reading these to your parents, what I typically do is I allow them to look over the list and I allow each person, if you're doing it with one, let them select two or three, but each person in a group gets to choose the one that they want to share something about. So sometimes I'll pose it as, what's the one that was the most eye-opening for you? Or what's the one that you struggled with the most but you feel that you were finally able to conquer? Or what's the one that didn't make the most sense to you? Or What's the one that you feel you got right away? Or So I kind of pose different scenarios and then I allow them to look at the list and comment on them one by one. And then depending on what they say, there's some dialogue that ensues out of that conversation. So if a parent says, you know, the parent's toes should follow his or her nose, you know, that, that really has been meaningful for me because I'm doing that now even outside of the playroom and I'm much more aware of giving my entire attention with my body language too. And so then that's when I might say, any of the rest of you noticed the difference in how your child reacts when your entire body is conveying attention? And, and then it just kind of brings in some conversation as each one shares. So that's how I handle that. If you want to, you're absolutely welcome to read through all of these. I think it's helpful to kind of just remind them and bring it all right back up for them. But if there's enough in the group, if everyone points out something, then that covers most and then maybe you could hit on the ones that weren't covered. But certainly make sure that they read them, hear them, and are aware of them in some fashion for all 15 of those rules of thumb. All right, and then the next page is kind of the other things to remember, I mean, that's actually what it's titled, but it's kind of all of the other stuff that's important as a recap. So there are 16 on here. Many of them have been discussed before. Some of them have not necessarily been phrased in this way. So for this sheet, I typically go over each one with them. And as I'm going, I remind them, when I get to one that really registered with you or really was significant for you, you know, tell me why. And then I kind of allow the conversation to go that way. But with this one, because it wasn't the rule of thumb where it was explicitly stated every single week, I do go over all 16 of these. So most of this has been discussed at least, but like I said, it's important for them to be able to see it. And again, here's another list for them, right? So as they are moving forward, let's say a month from now, this is a helpful encouragement to say, keep this out so that it just kind of reminds you and brings you back to what you learned and you can keep it something that you're working on consistently. So first one is reflective responses help children to feel understood and can lessen anger. 
That goes all the way back to week one. So you can tie in the connection there of the training. This goes back to week two, number two. Children express what their lives are like now, what their needs are, or how they wish things could be. So remember, in week two, when we talked about the entire intention behind the playtime is to allow the child to express their needs, their feelings, their wants, their desires, etc. So that circles back to that. Number three, in the playtimes, the parent is not the source of the answers. And they give the reminder of the, hmm, empathic grunts, I wonder statements, returning responsibility. So remember at the early part of it, I kind of had an issue with the training saying that parents are dumb. Well, they've reworded it at the end, so I appreciate that. So parent is not the source of the answers. I like that approach better. And so remind them of that. You know, you don't have to have the solution, the answer, the magic, you know, potion to figure something out for kids. They can lead and direct and guide the entire interaction. Number four, don't ask questions you already know the answer to. I have always phrased that if you know enough to ask a question, you know enough to make a statement. But same intention there. Number five, well, and five is kind of the continuation of four. So questions imply non-understanding. Questions put children in their minds and children live in their hearts. That was covered. And when I meet with parents and I do my consultations, I will say that to them. You know, kids are constantly facing an internal battle between their heads and their hearts because their hearts are their emotional center. They do and they react and they think and they behave largely dictated by their emotions. And then after their emotions settle down a little bit, then their brain kicks in. And that's when the cognitive piece of it comes in. That's when the rational piece of it comes in. And then they're constantly trying to merge the two. So that's why in this training, we focus a lot on not asking questions because we want children to be able to express their emotions effectively without having to kind of flip flop back and forth between their head and their heart. Okay, number six. This has been implied a lot. I don't think it has been explicitly stated. So this is one where I spend a little bit more time. What's important is not what the child knows, but what the child believes. And here's an interesting story about that. My husband and I were on youth staff at our church, which meant we worked with specific age groups within our youth group. So I had 10th grade girls. My husband had, I think, eighth grade boys. And the youth leader was talking to us, doing a training with all of the volunteers once. And he said, kids do not care what you say. Kids care about what they believe. And his illustration of that point was, kids know that you love them because you say, I love you, because you're their parent, because you know parents love their kids and parents say, I love you. So the child cognitively knows, the teen in this case, because it was a youth group, the teen knows that you love them, but they want you to like them. And notice how there's the difference of what the child believes versus what the child knows, because the child knows that parents love them. They don't necessarily believe that the parent likes them. And my husband and I have remembered that and we have made that a priority for us raising our son to make sure he knows that we like him. 
and that goes to the way that I treat kids at my practice, that goes to the way that I interact with people. I want people to know certain things, but I want them to believe certain things too. So there's kind of the illustration that I typically use, but it's not what the child knows, it's what the child believes. So the child has to believe that they are good. The child has to believe that they are capable. The child has to believe that they know how to handle things, that they can trust themselves. The list goes on and on. So that is a really important piece there to kind of help parents wrap their heads around because that's not necessarily been talked about in detail. Okay, so number seven, when you focus on the problem, you lose sight of the child. This ties back to the focus on the donut, not the whole rule of thumb, but the further explanation there is the child sometimes gets lost in the midst of the dysfunction, the behavior, the outbursts, the disrespect, whatever the parent is dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis, the child gets lost in all of that. And the illustration I use with parents at my practice is I typically say, after so long and after the child starts to work on their yuck is what I call it because everything that a kid has to work through is yuck. Same thing with adults. Therapy for adults, they're working through yuck too. So I say they have to spend time working on all of the yuck. Their fears, their anger, their frustration, their sadness, their guilt, their blame, whatever. And what that means is all of that for a very long time overshadows the greatness of the kid because the greatness always is overshadowed by the yuck. But as soon as the yuck starts to get processed and moved and shuffled and, and disappear, all of a sudden the greatness of the kid emerges. And I talk about the process of almost like something bubbling up and all of a sudden there's you know a flower growing in the midst of the swamp or something like that. Because if the only focus is on the problems, you cannot see the growth and the greatness and the amazing qualities in a child because that kind of is, you know, under the rain cloud and you can't see it. So that's also a really important piece to share with parents. So then number eight, support the child's feeling, intent, or need, even if you can't support the child's behavior. So going back to a child's feelings are always valid but the behavior is not necessarily always appropriate. And so that's why we reflect feelings. That's why we set limits in that way. I know that you are feeling this way. I know that you want this. I know you think it's fun. I know that this means a lot to you, whatever, because all of those things are always okay. The feeling, the need, the intention, the desire, those are always acceptable, even if the behavior isn't. So that's when the limit is set, okay? Number nine, noticing the child is a powerful builder of self-esteem. This is the 30-second burst of attention. This is the notes to your child. This is the uh, cookie or sandwich hug and kiss. Um, you know, all of these little homework assignments all along have been wrapped up in noticing the child. Notice one physical characteristic about your child you've never noticed before. Noticing them builds them up. It gives them self-confidence, it gives them self-worth, it gives them self-value. All of those things are crucial for long-term health and happiness of the child. Then number 10, to the empowerment section. So remember that was 
week six and week eight. Empower children by giving them credit for making decisions. You decided to, you wanted to, you made sure that you, etc. So you're empowering them because of what they worked on. Remember, not about outcome, about effort. Okay, number 11. One of the best things that can be communicated is that children are competent. Tell them they're capable and they will think they're capable. If you tell them enough times that they can't do something, they can't. That is self-fulfilling prophecy in a three-sentence model right there. And I, because, I don't know, maybe because I teach, I don't know why, but uh, I tend to bring in other illustrations or examples of a lot of these principles. So self-fulfilling prophecy, I usually talk about that quite a bit. But then I will also bring in the Pygmalion effect. And I don't know, I would assume some of you all are aware of that, especially if you had a psychology background for undergrad or whatever. But the Pygmalion effect, again, that's, that's a perfect example of that. And so I talk about that and I talk about what that study revealed and, and the significance of the message that people are told. And sometimes, depends on my group, depends on the, the feel and the participants, but I will sometimes reference the Pretty Woman movie where Julia Roberts later in the movie, she says to Richard Gere, something along the lines of, you know, it gets to a point where it's easier to believe the bad stuff about yourself. Like, I guess he was asking her, you know, well, why did you never think that you could do something more? And she said, well, it's easier to believe the bad stuff when you've heard it so many times. So there, I mean, so many examples of children, people being, I guess, groomed to believe certain things about them just based on what other people say to them and about them. And even the looking glass self, if you're familiar with the looking glass self concept, the entire purpose of that theory is that other people reflect back to you who you are. So if other people are constantly telling you that you're capable and you're, you know, you can believe in yourself and you can figure it out and you know how to handle it, you assume that as true. And then obviously the converse is true as well. If people tell you that you can't do it or you can't figure it out or you're not capable, you're going to start believing that. So that is one of the most significant things that parents can communicate to their kids is that they are competent and capable and that the parent trusts them to be able to handle it. Really meaningful. Then number 12, encourage creativity and freedom. I think that, again, not necessarily talked about in any depth or detail, but kind of overarchingly assumed through a lot of what we've shared during this training. So yes, of course, kids need to be creative. They need to have freedom. They need to have that independence and that autonomy. However, with freedom comes responsibility. And that's where the choices come in. That's where the consequences and the if-then statements. So that has been implied i think but not necessarily clearly stated so it's important to kind of process that with them <clears throat> okay number 13 my favorite we're about to institute a new and significant policy within the confines of this domicile now that's from the cookies choices and kids video if you were not able to show that video then they will need explanation of that phrase if they saw the video they'll immediately remember and understand the concept there is make it very clear to kids that what you're about to say is significant and they need to listen. And 
Dr. Landreth did that with this phrase. They can use a different phrase. He encouraged, he encouraged them to make up big words to get their child's attention. So however that looks for your parents, you know, that honor them with their own unique spin on that. But it's important to help them understand that when they're about to set a policy or a rule or a change in their home, they need to make kids aware of the importance of that. Okay. Number 14, when we are flexible in our stance, we handle anger much more easily. When parents are rigid in their approach, both the parent and the child can end up hurt. And the analogy there that, and it actually gives you a little cue there, but it says, remember the stiff arm as if the stiff arm had already been talked about. And I know that it hasn't. So the concept there is I usually give a football illustration and as an aside, I am a huge baseball fan, but aside from Bucks football, I, I'm not a college football person. I'm not an NFL person. I, football's not my game. Baseball is my game for sure. But I'm at least aware enough of football to understand the concept of the stiff arm. And so if you think about when football players are tackling and running and playing the game, they have learned how to handle their impact and handle their movement so that they can be more flexible and handle getting hit and getting bumped and getting knocked around. But then I usually use the analogy, you know, if you stick your arm out and hold it as strong as you can, and someone's running at you full steam and your intention is to keep it straight and not move it one bit. I'm not going to let my elbow buckle. I'm not going to move my arm. It's going to stay straight out rigid. What's going to happen? The other person's going to get hurt on the impact and your arm's going to get hurt on the impact. So the concept is there has to be flexibility and there has to be give. And so the more flexible the parent is, the healthier the relationship and the healthier the child learns to model flexibility. So we handle our negative emotions more effectively when we are less rigid. That's kind of the overarching principle there. And then number 15, again, this has been touched on, not really discussed in depth. When unsure of what to say to the child or what to do, the parent should ask themselves what action or words will most preserve the relationship or do the least harm. And then the encouragement is sometimes walking away and saying nothing or even telling the child, I need to take a time out to cool off and then we can talk is a better approach than being completely overrun with emotion and being angry and trying to make sense of it in the midst of the emotion. Because remember, rule of thumb, when a child is drowning, it's not the time to teach them to swim. Same is true for parents. When they are drowning in their own emotions and in their own state of feeling, that is not the time to try to navigate what's going on. Everyone needs to be more calm and in control before any meaningful discussion should take place. So the, the point of remembrance there is nothing at this moment is more important than my relationship with my child. So if there is a danger of breaking the relationship, causing a fracture in the relationship because of the parent's emotional state, it is always better to say, what will best preserve my relationship is taking a break. Even if it's for a couple minutes, it doesn't have to be an hour, but you know, I'm going to go to another room and I'm going to walk back in in a couple minutes and we're going to try again. And notice that it says this applies to other people in the parents' lives as well. So 
significant others, spouses, parents, you know, I mean, adult parents, so the parent and their parents, any interaction that they have, this applies to, because preserving the relationship is always more important than anything else. Okay, and then finally, 16, which kind of circles back to the rule of thumb for today. Live in the moment, today is enough. Don't push children toward the future. So there's a very strong desire for parents to always be thinking about what's next and what's coming and you know I want my kids to be this and I want my kids to be able to handle this and all of those are helpful intentions, purposeful plans, all of those things. There's nothing inherently wrong with any of that. But sometimes today and only today holds the most special significant things. And sometimes we kind of forget that and get lost in always thinking about the future. And so living in the moment is a big piece for parents, especially on the heels of this training. They've been trying to be purposeful about focused attention and you know the 30 minute play times and all of the little homework assignments along the way that have been pushing them toward that right in the moment significant relationship building things. So today is enough. It doesn't, tomorrow will come. Everything that comes with tomorrow will come too. But right now, sometimes it's important to just be in that moment with the kids. So that is all of the training of this week and the whole thing done today. So if you flip back with me to the first page again, just to look at the homework assignments, little bit of a different feel for homework this week because, oops, I just dropped a remote, sorry. Um, it's a little bit of a different feel this week because they're not doing homework that they're going to report back to you with like they have in the past. It is now homework assignments that they just continue with things now that you're no longer going to be meeting. So <clears throat> the first is continuing the play sessions. And the message, if, if the parents were to stop conducting the play sessions, the message is that they were playing with their child because they had to, not because they wanted to. So remember at the beginning, you encouraged parents to say, I'm going to a special class so that I can learn special ways to play with you. Well, if the class ends and the playtime ends, the child very clearly makes the connection that, well, they weren't playing with me because they wanted to, they were playing with me because they were going to this class and the class is over, so now playtimes are over as well and that defeats a lot of what has been built in this training. So they are encouraged to continue their play sessions. It gives them a space to fill in how many more sessions they're going to do. And well, okay, so they can agree to continue their play sessions with their child of focus. But then if they have other children, then it, there's a place for them to say, I'm going to begin sessions with this other child for this many weeks. Because remember, the, the other siblings that were not the child of focus always feel that they were shortchanged and why don't I get to have special play times? And so the intention is all of a sudden now, other children can benefit from this as well. So encourage them to commit to at least eight sessions spread out in whatever schedule makes the most sense. So maybe it becomes bi-weekly now. Maybe it becomes one week for the child of focus and then one week for the other sibling. 
alternating back and forth or help them to plan through in a way that obviously is feasible. I mean, people are busy and when they're not submitting videos, there's less desire to comply. So I know that it's a challenge, but if they write it down and they commit to it, they're more likely to follow through. So have them write it down, have them talk about it, have them think through the schedule. And then if parents are open to it, um, it kind of depends. Some groups really, really want to meet again, really want to do follow-up meetings. Other groups, parents just seem like they are ready to be done and they don't particularly have a desire to do anything in the future. But sometimes it is helpful to schedule a follow-up meeting. So a date and a time for a follow-up meeting can be arranged and someone to coordinate that who will reach out to everybody and remind them of the meeting. And you know, sometimes it's helpful like two months from when you finish because that gives them enough time to you know, kind of figure out what it's going to look like when they're not in the training anymore, continue their play sessions, try it with other kids, etc. And then they kind of have some information to report back on about two months down the road. So one to two months out from when you finish is a helpful time frame. And someone to coordinate that with the parents is also helpful because if they just leave going, okay, we're gonna meet on you know, September 10th, well, if no one kind of follows up and reminds them of that, then it tends to be that no one shows up. So a volunteer coordinator is helpful to send out reminders and kind of make sure that everyone's still on board. And then there are some recommended reading uh, materials here. And obviously this training was done in, you know, middle of 2000, so 2005, 2006. So a lot of these resources are a little bit older. There are a lot newer ones, but these are all still helpful and they have that if they want to pursue, you know, more training or more information. So I hope that you have an extremely successful final week as you train your parents. I know that they have really benefited. I know that you have grown as the leader and facilitator of the CPRT. And so take Take a moment to really kind of digest and process the, the impact that this training has had on you and your parents. Process that out loud with them even, but at the very least, just independently for yourself. Think through the trans transformations that you've seen, the, the growth and the change and the impact that this has had because that is what is rewarding when you can see the difference that you and this training has made on the parents that you've worked with. So. Congratulations, I'm super happy for you all, and I look forward to seeing you this week when we meet live. See you soon, bye.